We consider church discipline again this Lord's Day, the same familiar text that we read last Lord's Day from Matthew 18 and from 1 Corinthians 5. We begin with Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18, and I would remind you that these are the words of our Savior himself. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. If your brother sins against you, go, tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. The words of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are delivered to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice, evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Father, we are so blessed to know that our Savior has a bride that will one day be presented to him without spot or wrinkle. We confess the impurities of this life continue in our own lives, in the life of your church, and sadly, some refuse to acknowledge that. So we pray as we consider this very serious matter of dealing with sinners, saints who are not living as saints, that you would guide us so that we would understand these truths, we would be bold enough to practice them in our lives, ultimately because we want Jesus to be honored and glorified in our lives, in the lives of others, in the lives of our church. So Holy Spirit, guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. time to time in the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament use a word to describe the the sorrow and the sadness and the grief that sometimes is involved in their ministry. And they use the word burden because it is a burden as those who have been called by God to to, to minister the gospel and to proclaim the truths of his word, to share with people that they are in sin and they are doomed if they do not repent. Habakkuk says in the very first verse of his book, the burden that the Habakkuk, the prophet, saw 
Habakkuk knew that impending doom was about to come upon the people of Israel. They were about to be put in exile in Babylon, and that was a great burden to him. And when they came back, Malachi was another prophet, and his book begins the same way. The burden of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Because sadly, the people had not learned their lesson. They were still in sin, and Malachi knew that he was going to have to proclaim that great burdensome message as well. Well, beloved, this week, last week's sermons on formal church discipline, judicial church disciplines, frankly, are burdens for me as your pastor. My heart aches as I proclaim to you the sad, sad reality of what awaits unrepentant brothers and sisters who forsake, who refuse rather to forsake their sinful actions and rather than abstain from teachings that reject the gospel of Christ, they hold on to them. Yet, that is a burden that we all must bear. I must bear it. You must hear it. Our, our directory for worship, I think, rightly reminds us that it is a matter of supreme importance that the minister of the word of God preach only the word of God and not the wisdom of man, that he handled the word of God correctly, always setting forth the Lord Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. And the preacher is to instruct his hearers in the whole counsel of God, to exhort the congregation to more perfect obedience to Christ, and to warn them of sins and dangers that are around them and that are within them. A preacher fails to perform his task as a God-appointed watchman on Zion's walls who neglects to warn the congregation of prevalent soul-destroying teachings by enemies of the gospel. Well, we just read, the whole counsel of God is my responsibility, and it is one of the great responsibilities I have, dear Christian, to instruct you in the ways of judicial discipline. Because that is, as we said last week, a true mark of the church. And I'm convinced, as we just read, it is a soul-destroying teaching from Satan that tells us to abandon church discipline because it's unloving. Or maybe some have heard it's just not kind. Well, let me remind you of what we read last Lord's Day from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Hear these words again. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Don't be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So really, it would be unloving for me as a minister of the gospel not to share with you this burden. The burden of the gospel. And sometimes church members sadly ignore the public private instruction from God's word. They're not self-disciplined enough to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. They don't demonstrate that they are understanding the gospel of our Lord. And so, without the exercise of church discipline, these wayward brothers may remain wayward. And I would say to you, your elders would be derelict in our duty if we were to not give as those who have to give account of your souls, if we did not even exercise that formal judicial discipline, one of the keys of the kingdom that God has given to us. 
what we shared with you last week, this is a burden, but it's also a blessing of God's church because wayward brothers and sisters are brought back from their sin when they are called to repentance. And so that's where we left off last week. We considered very briefly at the end, I just mentioned the three reasons or three purposes we practice judicial discipline. And just again to define terms, that means we actually bring a trial uh, to those who refuse to repent or to those who hold on to false doctrine. Why do we go through such a burden? The first and foremost reason is because we always want to vindicate the honor of Jesus, the honor of Christ. Jesus is the righteous king. He's the head of his church. And Jesus abhors sin. And we who have named the name of Christ must live in righteousness before him, before one another, and before a lost and dying world. We who have claimed to be those who are Christians have taken on his name. That name means a follower of Christ, a little Christ. And so to allow repentance, unrepentant sin or sinners to be ignored, to be tolerated, or even worse, to be affirmed in their wrong actions or teachings, that runs completely counter to the gospel of Christ. And it brings dishonor to Christ's holy name. It runs counter as well to the Apostle Paul's prayerful desire for the saints in Thessalonians. If you'd like to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians, I want to show you there how it is God's people are supposed to live. We talked last week in terms of exercising self-discipline, being those who are sanctified in the Lord. And that's what Paul is telling us again in 2 Timothy 1, 11 and 12. Notice in 2 Timothy 1, 11, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God will make you worthy of his calling, and he may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. We who live by faith, we who do the good deeds that God calls us to are demonstrating that we are the self-disciplined brothers and sisters of Christ that we ought to be. Then what happens as a result of that, verse 12, the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We live according to his grace. We are sanctified by his grace, and then we glorify his name. But sadly, when that does not take place, formal church discipline may have to take place. And of course, the prime example of that in Scripture is the very sorrowful account that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 that the man who is having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother is acting in a way that not even the pagans of Corinth did. And Corinth was a horribly wicked city. They practiced all kinds of sexual perversions, promiscuous sexual deviancy, but they would never even do such a thing. And what are the people of Corinth doing? They're bragging about this man and his liberty in Christ, apparently. And so it's in ch- when church discipline has to take place, it's done, as chapter 5, verse 4 tells us in 1 Corinthians, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is done ultimately with his authority on his behalf for the honor of his name. 
Now, when you've been pastor for eight years, you realize that perhaps you're beginning to recycle illustrations. So forgive me if you've heard this one before, but it's just so appropriate for the issue before us. Remember the story of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, who was known for never having lost a battle, which is pretty astounding when you think about it. Well, at one point he saw one of his men retreating in battle. And after the battle, he called this man aside and he said to this soldier, Soldier, what is your name? And the soldier wouldn't even look at Alexander in the face. And he rather downcastingly said, my name is Alexander, sir. And Alexander the Great looked at him and said, either you change your ways or you change your name. And in essence, what we're saying with church discipline, if you're not going to act like the Lord Jesus, that's your name, then we're going to have to part ways with you. And so, beloved, it is a serious matter to say. And we notice in, also in verse 4, we do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. We do it with the power of the Lord Jesus, but we all do it when we're all assembled together in his name. This isn't something that's done in secret, so only some people know. It's a serious enough matter that we want to say to unrepentant brothers, you must change your ways. And that's our great desire with church discipline. It's not to see one Discipline for the sake of judgment upon them. Rather, it's to vindicate the name of Christ. But it's also, secondly, to reclaim the, the offender in love. To reclaim the offender in love. And see, that's why I really think church discipline is so misunderstood. We don't go out of our way to be vindictive. We go out of our way in love to reclaim an erring brother or an erring sister. We just read Proverbs 3.12. The Lord reproves his whom he loves. And so God's people must reprove those whom they love. Our desire should never be that a sinner remains in his sin so that we may bring judgment, God's judgment upon him. It may come to that, but that's not ultimately in our hands. That's in God's hands. Our desire, as Matthew 18.15 tells us, is we see a brother in sin, we go to that brother. So Why? So that we can... Again, from Romans eight, uh, Matthew 18, 15, we can regain our brothers. We love them so much, we'll bring others along with us a second time, if necessary, to reclaim them. And it was that same loving mindset uh, that uh, Paul mentioned in, in words we've already read this morning. So let me remind you what we read in 2 Thessalonians three fourteen. He says, if anyone doesn't obey... What we say in this letter, uh, take note of that person. And Paul in this letter is very important matters before him. He's talking about the second coming. Many have totally misunderstood what's happening with the second coming of the Lord. They're not living righteously. And so Paul says, if they don't understand what I'm saying in this letter, if they reject the truths of this letter, if they live unrighteously, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, bring him to shame. But that's not where the verse ends. Bring him to shame. Don't regard him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. We want him to be won back to the Lord. And this is such a burden, brothers, as I've said. I think we too often don't connect verse 13 with 14 and 15. Verse 13 says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Well, the context of doing good is being those who are ready to confront brothers with their sin, to warn them because we love them. And then in James, we read that a, one who does this, one who sees his brother who is going astray and brings them back, wins his brother and covers a multitude of sins. And you might be thinking of Peter's words, love covers 
a multitude of sins. Love seeks to confront the sinner, to reclaim the offender in love. We'll have more to say about this as we continue on in in the sermon, especially as we consider excommunication in a little while. But please know that the goal, even there, in that severe judgment, is to win the brother back in love. Yet, sadly, when repentance doesn't come, when we have to practice judicial discipline, the third reason we have to do so is this, to protect the purity of the church to protect the purity of the church. We often read Ephesians 5.27, and in its context, it's proper to do so, but we limit it to the idea of the husband's relationship to the wife, and we say that the husband is supposed to love the wife like Jesus loved the church. But let me remind you that Ephesians 5.27 tells us that Jesus gave himself up for his bride. He died for his bride. Why? So that she could be without spot, without wrinkle, holy, without blemish. Paul thought of every which way he could to make the emphasis very clear. God's people are supposed to be sanctified, set apart, sinless people. And so when we turn to 1 Corinthians 5, Paul uses symbolic language, but again, language that would be familiar to his readers. And any of you ladies who, and men for that matter, who've done any cooking know this Illustration to be a valid one. A little leaven, a little yeast, will leaven the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are, unleavened. Sin is like leaven. If it's left unchecked, it will not be contained. It will spread. And so it's in that light that in Corinth, one is practicing incest, and he must be removed, or the whole church, rather, will be corrupted. Verse 18 goes on to say that the church will be full of malice and evil, and that's not the holy bride that we are called to be in Christ. We are an unleavened, an unsinful, a pure loaf. That ought to be our great desire. Christ, our Passover lamb, has died for us, the passage continues on. And so we are to be those who live in sincerity and in truth. And those who do not live in sincerity and in truth, those practicing evil must be removed so that we who follow, we who honor the Lord Jesus Christ will be part of a pure and holy bride without spot or without wrinkle, before our great Savior, the one who has died for us. Well, as is the case of any sermon, any sermon series, anytime you ponder portions of God's word, there's so much more that could be said. And there's so much more that I could say about church judicial discipline than I will have said last in this week's or last week's sermon. But very briefly, since we are members of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and since the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is known to take church discipline seriously, I just thought it would be good for us to briefly, and I do mean briefly, consider the possible outcomes of judicial discipline in our denomination, in our local church, as a body that's representative of the true Church of Christ. I do believe there's good scriptural basis for each one of these principles 
But again, time will not permit us to go through all of those, but I just want to give you that overview. Because remember, when you became a member of this church, and those of you visiting with us today, we're grateful for your visit. Trust me, this is not a normal sermon to talk about kicking people out of the church. We don't want to scare you off by any stretch, but it is a serious matter. So please note that. But as those who've said, you will submit to the government of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Let's just have a brief excursion into what that government's, uh, what's involved. What are then the possible outcomes of judicial discipline? And I'm taking this phrase directly from the book. Sometimes one comes as his own accuser. One coming as his own accuser. That's pretty much what it sounds like. As a trial's about to begin, as a charge is brought to a brother or sister, the brother or sister says, you know what? That's absolutely true. I did that. I believed that. And it runs counter to what Scripture says. It runs counter to what the Bible says. And I repent of that. Well, at that point, we don't have to have a full trial, do we? Because they've already admitted. We rejoice in them coming to their senses there. Now, we may have to bring a censure because we want them to see how serious their sin was. But nonetheless, one comes as his own accuser. But sadly, there are times when one comes as his own accuser when there isn't repentance. When there is, yes, I did that, but I don't care, and I'm going to keep doing it. And sadly, we then have to deal with an unrepentant uh, brother or sister. We don't have to go through a whole trial because they've already admitted guilt, even if they don't care. And sadly, yes, that generally winds up in, in excommunication. But what happens when we do go to trial? Well, think of a regular court case. Our hope is that we can acquit the individual. There will be an acquittal. That really is a possible outcome. And yes, I have served on one uh, judicial case in another OPC congregation. They asked for other elders to join them for the trial. And we did find the uh, person that was accused not guilty. And that's a good thing too, is it not? It is good to exonerate the Lord Jesus and to say his church is pure. And this brother has been wrongly accused, and we gladly acknowledge that false accusation, and so we've acquitted them of what they've done. But what happens if they're actually determined to be guilty? Well, brothers and sisters, let me just give you a brief lesson in Presbyterianism. This is a beautiful thing. They have the right to appeal. They have the right to appeal. There's a recognition of the need for more than any one man or any group of men to rule over Christ's church. Now, I know this is not going to shock you, those who've been around church all your life, but here goes. Sometimes elders do err. I'll say it again. Sometimes elders do err. We are not Roman Catholics. We are not saying when we speak, we are infallible popes. Even well-intentioned, godly church officers do not always reach righteous decisions. We don't always execute wise judgment. And one found guilty by his session can appeal that decision to the presbyter. And again, for the uninitiated, the presbyter is a group of other elders nearby from other churches. And that decision can be either upheld or it can be reversed by the presbytery. And when a presbytery makes a decision, if there are those in the presbytery who aren't satisfied with that judgment, they can bring it to general assembly. That is, the whole elders of the entire denomination come together and try to make the decision. Why do I share all that with you? 
not to bore you out of socks about church government, but, but because you need to know that your elders in this congregation take church discipline seriously. We want to make a wise, righteous decision. And before the Lord, we're willing to say, sometimes we need others to help us in that decision. But whether there's an appeal or not, at some point, a, a determination of guilt is made and a censure is pronounced. And censure, again, a term that doesn't need to scare you. It's just another form of uh, saying this is the judgment that's made. This is the actual formal discipline that must come down. And in the OPC, uh, elders have four options. And I will tell you this morning, we are not considering uh, how to deal with other church officers, but rather with just members of the congregation for time's sake. But what are those four options? Well, here they are. The first censure can be an admonition. An admonition. An admonition is very simply a tender and solemn confronting the offender with his sin, warning him of his danger, and exhorting him to be repentant and to be more faithful. Consider it something like a, a, a reprimand, a gentle reminder not to continue in your sin. The next step is rebuke. And it's, as it sounds, it's a form of censure that's more severe than admonition. It consists in setting forth the fact that this is a serious offense and it reproves the offender and exhorts the offender to more fair, perfect faithfulness in the Lord Jesus. And the third step beyond admonition and rebuke is suspension. And that is a form of censure by which one is deprived of privileges of membership in the church, and this can be for a definite or an indefinite period of time. We usually think of suspension, the privileges of the church, not being allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper until genuine repentance is revealed. But beyond that, we can prevent them from doing things like teaching in Sunday school, serving in the nursery, under this probationary time. But ultimately, the, the most severe censure is excommunication. Excommunication is resorted to only in cases of offenses aggravated by persistence impenitence. That is, the person refuses to repent, remains in the sin. It consists in a solemn declaration by the church that the offender is no longer considered to be a true member of the body of Christ. But excommunication, I will say it again, I hope you hear this, is never our great desire or ultimate goal. What's the ultimate goal? Even that those who've been excommunicated would be restored, would be reclaimed, would repent. And let's consider excommunication a little bit more and even the possibility of restoration. To do so, we'll, we'll, we'll consider a little more closely uh, some of the things that we haven't mentioned yet in 1 Corinthians 5. Notice again in 1 Corinthians 5, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And that, by the way, is why we read the Deuteronomy passage where incestuous relationships were seen as cursed then and they're seen as cursed now. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. There's excommunication. The one is removed from them. Symbolically, we've already read this in verse 7, we cleanse out the old leaven. We didn't read verse 13, but notice how verse 13 ends. Purge the evil person from among 
do. And that word purge is the word that was often used in the Old Testament for those like false prophets who were put to death because of their wickedness. They were placed outside, finally, the community of God's covenant people. And so the incestuous, unrepentant sinner in the name of Christ is placed outside the visible church. But let me remind you, it's not just by the Apostle Paul, but by the entire church at Corinth. Well, in the day and age of rugged individualism in which we live in America, in an era where we are taught salvation is based only on a personal relationship with Christ, apart from his church, this may seem like a rather insignificant thing. So what? I'm just outside of the church. It's no big deal. I still love Jesus. Jesus still loves me. Well, let me ask us all to turn to Acts chapter 2, because this, of course, we often talk about the beginning of the church, not that God didn't have people in the Old Testament. Of course he did, and we are united with them. But we, we consider Pentecost, where, where many uh, have the Holy Spirit come upon them. At this point, the disciples have had that take place upon them. Others see what has happened. Peter begins to preach. He preaches the sermon, and here's the conclusion to it all in verse 38. Repent, turn away from your sins. Be baptized, demonstrate that you're serious about this by having the the sign of the covenant placed upon you. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, you turn away from your sin, you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will, uh, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the gospel. That is the good news, is it not? And if any of you are here, in person or on the live stream, and you've never repented, you've never turned in faith to Christ, you've never had the mark of baptism placed upon you, I exhort you, to, now is the day to say, I am a sinner before a holy God. I must be forgiven. And the only way I can be forgiven is to trust in the one who died on the cross for sinners. But that's not where the story ends. Notice what happens in verse 41. What are those who repent? What are those who say they believe Peter's message do? Verse 41, those who received his word were baptized, just like Peter said, but notice next, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls, 3,000 people say they believe in Jesus, they're baptized, they become members of the church. One doesn't happen without the other. You might say, well, that was just the one-time exception. Notice the end of verse 47 The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Those who are saved, those who have repented of their sins, are added to the church. Those who have a personal relationship with Jesus have a personal relationship with his body, the church. And that's why our confession rightly says this, quote, The visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. It's the house and it's the family of God out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So to be excommunicated is obviously a very serious matter. It is to be declared as one who's outside of Christ's kingdom, outside of his household, outside of his family. No longer is this one to be considered a true follower of Christ. No longer is he to be treated as a true Christian. And Paul couldn't make that any clearer when he proclaims in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, these church members were told in Corinth how to treat this man who was removed from the church. He is to be delivered over 
to Satan, deliver this man to Satan. That doesn't sound like a Christian to me at all. Those who don't follow Christ do follow his enemy, the evil one, the devil. This proclamation, this declaration really is just a reflection of reality. See, one who acts in such a wicked manner, one who refuses to repent, is a child of the devil. You may recall last week we considered the important point that, that God has given his church officers. Christ is the head of the church, but he's given church officers the keys of the kingdom. And the officers were the apostles of his day, the pastors, the elders of our day. And with these keys of the kingdom, they have the authority to open the kingdom to those who repent and trust in Christ. And they have the responsibility to close the kingdom to those who refuse to forsake their sins, who refuse to follow the Lord. And last week we said the keys are used or exercised in two ways. The first way is through the preaching, the teaching of the word of God. And the second way is through church discipline. I proclaim the gospel of Christ each Lord's Day. I open the kingdom for those who will repent, who turn in faith to Christ. The elders hear that confession and welcome this new brother, this new sister in the Lord. Sadly, those who reject that gospel message must be closed from the kingdom. That's the gospel message. And I think it's interesting. We don't, this phrase, delivered over to Satan, uh, again, there's, Jesus says there's no neutrality, right? Either you're with me or you're against me. Go ahead and turn to Acts 26 if you'd like. This is not, as far as I know, a text that I've seen anyone turn to in talking about church discipline, but this idea of being under the power of Satan as opposed to the power of God comes into play in Paul's ministry, and it comes into very front and center in Paul's ministry in Acts 26, verses 14 through 18. Paul is rehearsing for King Agrippa the story of when he became a Christian, and he says, I and a bunch of my companions had a light from heaven, and you know the story, I think, but in verse 20, 14, Paul picks up the story. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Rise, stand upon your feet. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant, as a witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to the those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people, from the Gentiles, to open to whom I am sending you. Now, why am I sending you? All that read, because I want you to see what Jesus says. And these are Jesus' words to Paul. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may return from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Open up the kingdom as you proclaim the good news of Jesus. Get them away from this, uh, the power of Satan. Get them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Place them among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Sanctified, set apart. That's us, beloved. We are those sanctified, set apart, without spot or wrinkle, called brothers and sisters in Christ, we who've been delivered from the power of Satan to God. But if in our midst there are those who persist to act as if they are Satan's children, then we must treat them that way. We must deliver them over to Satan. We open the kingdom. We close the kingdom with the preaching of the word. 
We open the kingdom. We close the kingdom with church discipline. Now, if this, again, sounds harsh and vicious and mean, let's consider the words of our Lord from Matthew 18, 17 next, because we have another phrase. Remember, this is at the end of the the whole process. You've gone one-to-one, and you've tried to regain the brother. The brother won't repent. You bring other brothers and sisters, two or three more, they still won't repent. Then you tell it to the whole church. And if they won't repent, these are not my words. These are the words of our King Jesus, the head of the church, said this. Let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Let them be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Were those who heard his word, the Jews of the Lord's day would have had no doubt as to what that meant. You are to treat them as those who are not a part of God's people. And thus we dare not call excommunicated individuals in our day and age brothers and sisters. But that does not mean we look down upon our noses upon them in self-righteousness and it does not mean we despise them because that's what the Jewish religious leaders of our Lord's Day did. But let me remind you, in contrast, remember our Savior was rightly, de- rightly described in Matthew eleven nineteen 19 as one who was a friend of, do you remember? Tax collectors and sinners. Matthew eight twelve, our Lord himself said, many will come from the east and from the west, the Gentiles, and they'll recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. They belong to the kingdom of God. Gentiles do. Tax collectors do. Sinners do. Let me demonstrate this to you real simply, brothers and sisters. Are you ready? How many of you are Gentiles? How many of you were born sinners? Well, thanks for the short hands. I didn't necessarily need that, but there it is. We all could have. And you know what? Our, what's our testimony? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. So when Jesus tells us to treat even excommunicated sinners as tax collectors, as Gentiles, he's not saying to hate them. We're to love them, even as you love other believers. We're to pray for them. We're to evangelize them. We're to call them back to repentance and faith. Because I've been emphasizing this both this week and last. Our ultimate goal in discipline, and yes, even in this most severe of cases, excommunication, our ultimate goal is the return of wayward sinners to Christ. Loving restoration must always be our desire, even if we must, for a time, place individuals outside the body of Christ. Will they all return to Christ? Maybe not, but God can change the coldest of hearts. God can bring the greatest of rebels back to him. Excommunicated individuals are not all assured of eternal damnation in hell. Because God's grace is greater than anyone's sin. And God's grace can return even the worst of prodigals back to him. One has rightly said, discipline which is so inflexible as to leave no place for repentance and reconciliation has ceased to be truly Christian discipline. Notice, when Paul delivers the man over to Satan, he does so 
so that his, uh, I'm sorry, he turns him over to, to Satan so that Satan can destroy his flesh, that which is temporary. He doesn't say, I'm turning him over to Satan so that Satan can destroy his soul. Right? Now, Paul probably had apostolic authority that you and I do not have. He probably did, it was exercising the authority to inflict physical harm upon other believe, uh, those who were excommunicated. But you know what, beloved, I think it's appropriate for us to take this principle and apply it. We want a temporary time of separation. And here's how we should pray. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this wayward sinner back to you. If that means he has to eat with the pigs like the prodigal, have him eat with the pigs like the prodigal. If that means you have to bring some spiritual or some physical ailment upon them to get them to their senses, do that. Why? So that their souls will be saved, as the verse goes on in the day of judgment. What ultimately matters is that they repent now. Because if they don't repent now, on judgment day, it's too late. Lord, temporarily, if we have to, cease to call them a brother and sister, would you do whatever it takes to bring them back? That should be our prayer for the excommunicated. And this is not hypothetical. This is not theoretical. Turn with me to one of the most incredible passages of Scripture, the most gracious, one of the more gracious passages we could possibly read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Because remember, Paul has written this first letter to say to the church at Corinth, you must deal with this sinner. You must excommunicate this sinner. But now, in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, you, you must. And what a joy it is to welcome back this sinner. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me. No. Paul is obviously grieving from a distance, but he's not physically there. And so what he's basically saying at this point is, remember, I'm not there in your midst, beloved. But in some measure, and I'm not exaggerating, I'm not putting it too severely, he has inflicted pain on all of you. Remember how we started this sermon? Church discipline, sin, should be a burden to all of us. And Paul can say, I know, I'm, I'm away. I'm not there day by day suffering along with you. And he's brought punishment, uh, uh, grief upon you, pain upon you. But, verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. You did what I asked. You shunned him. You excommunicated him. And that's enough. Now, what, what we have implied here, of course, is that this man did truly repent. And it is interesting as well. Some of you may be wondering the punishment of the majority. Apparently, there were some at Corinth who didn't follow Paul's instruction. At the end of Second Corinthians, he's going to actually uh, say to them, I am an apostle. You should have listened to me. I do have apostolic authority. But even though not everyone in Corinth did, the majority did. And the Lord used that majority to bring repentance to the brother. And now, how do you treat him? You should, verse 7, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. When one truly repents, we truly forgive. That's what God has done for us. That's what Christ did for us on the cross. And that's what we need to do for others. Otherwise, they could be led into the despair of Satan yet again. So I beg you, Paul's very strongly here. I'm using all my apostolic authority. I'm begging you to reaffirm your love 
for him. See, we don't have the option of saying, well, you know what, suffer a little bit longer. You really inflicted so much harm on me. I'm, you know, five years from now, maybe I'll be able to forgive you. That's not the attitude we have. Sin was awful, but God's grace was sufficient. And I'm going to return now and treat you as a brother in Christ. Well, brothers and sisters of grace, this two-week series on judicial discipline culminating in this consideration of excommunicating really needs to be a sober warning for all of us. We must be faithful, self-disciplined members of Christ's church. We must pay good heed to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to love the truth of the gospel. We must not succumb to the temptation to think that we will never be those who would wander away to the point that our elders will never need to bring formal church discipline against us. We must take heed to Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 10-12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest anyone fall. We must make the same self-assessment that the Apostle Paul made just a few verses later. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Always, beloved, remain dependent on that grace. But sadly, today, I must inform you that formal discipline has been brought against one of our members. After we've closed our sermon in prayer, we're going to end the live stream a bit earlier than we normally do so that we can make the public pronouncement of censure to you who are brothers and sisters here at Grace. And as we do so, may we all know that such a pronouncement is made in obedience to King Jesus because he's the head of the church. He's the one who calls all of us to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we have in Christ. We are to be those who love and serve him in obedience and in fear. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus through Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.20 For those who persist in sin rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we recognize that you are a holy, righteous God, but we also rejoice in knowing that you're a loving God. And you have called your people to be holy. We fail, but you love us. You call us constantly to repent. And Father, we are fully confident that when we do repent, you do forgive. Thank you for that. But help us to recognize that we must be those who grieve over sin. We must be those who desire to be righteous, godly saints. Forgive us for failing to do so. Cause us to recognize our need to continually come before you, seeking the forgiveness that we are assured of in Christ. Father, we pray that we would be more fervent in our prayers for our, the prodigals that we know, that you would do whatever you need to bring them back to us, more importantly, back to you. 
Father, would you help our elders to be brave in utilizing the keys of the kingdom, both in the faithful proclamation of the word and in utilizing church discipline in a way that brings glory and honor to King Jesus. And hear us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.